Formula One mourns the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Tributes have been paid by members of the F1 community, including Formula One President and CEO Stefano Dominicali. He sent his condolences to the royal family and said this, For more than seven decades, Her Majesty dedicated her life to public service with dignity and devotion and inspired so many around the world. Queen Elizabeth II was present at the very first Formula One World Championship Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1950. She bestowed knighthoods on four Formula One drivers during her 70-year reign, most recently to Sir Lewis Hamilton. Her Majesty also knighted Sir Sterling Moss, Sir Jack Brabham and Sir Jackie Stewart. Formula One sends its deepest condolences to the royal family and to the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. I bet I can answer the three-word question in your head right now. Yes, it's Glock. Timo Glock. Maybe you know part of his story, the decisive, rain-soaked final lap of the 2008 Brazilian Grand Prix. You could see literally the rain, how much it was. And I said, guys, I need to come in now. It's impossible. I'm not going to survive that last lap. It's impossible. Bunch of cars overtaking me. My engineer just told me that Lewis Hamilton is world champion, but he didn't tell me that I decided the championship. On that dramatic afternoon, Lewis Hamilton beat Felipe Massa to the world title. For Timo, the after effects continue to this day. But there are many more amazing chapters to Timo's tale, like his sudden call up to Formula One. A whirlwind weekend that began with a bathroom phone call and ended in celebrations with Michael Schumacher. But soon after, he fell out of the sport and totally wrote off his dreams. I called my dad and I said, man, I'm back on Monday again. As a scaffolder, I give up on this. They don't want me in F1. I was 100% sure that's it. That's game over. An all-or-nothing season changed his life and got him back to Formula One, where his podiums earned the attention of the very top teams. I was talking to Renault at this stage. They were very interesting signing me next to Robert Kubica. But then I had this phone call from McLaren. They were interested talking to me. Oh my goodness, what a story Timo Glock has to tell. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. From his Formula One debut with Jordan in 2004 to his podiums with Toyota in 2008 and 2009, it was clear that Timo Glock belonged at motorsport's pinnacle. But his route there was not straightforward. There were backwards and sideways steps along the way, and there were so many moments where he came agonisingly close to career-changing breakthroughs, race wins or contracts with front-running teams. We talk about all of that, plus how it feels when lawyers decide your Formula One future, chess and cycling with the Schumachers. And yes, Brazil 2008. How hard that last lap was, his crazy 24 hours after the race, the good and the bad things which followed afterwards, including an unlikely friendship. But we started in the here and now. Timo's a TV pundit for Sky Deutschland, and he'd just come off duty when we sat down to talk. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Timo, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, you're looking a little bit sweaty on the other side of the table. <laughs> You've just been playing table tennis against George Russell. Were you victorious? Unfortunately not. Uh, it's the second match I lost this year. Um, and it's, it's something like, you know, we call it stop the clock. 
and we did it last year playing darts against the drivers and this year it's sort of a mini table tennis and actually against George it was a really fun game because it it had to go over the whole long distance let's say three sets play up to seven I won the first he won the second and then we had a decider and the funny thing was he had to go into a meeting and the engineers were already up and saying George we have the meeting and he said no 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 we need to play this we need to finish this game <laughs> so uh, and he had really fun and this is this is part of the whole uh, stop the clock thing you know we, we want to do interviews in a different way not not being uh, yeah let's say in, in that normal interview session they have to do every day every weekend uh, we want to try to get them a bit out of out of the normal stuff, you know, get, talking to them in a different environment and you f really re feel and you realize they really enjoy this because it's different, you know. I mean, I still ask them questions, sometimes a bit different, but the, the funny thing is the competitiveness of everyone is even on a table tennis, a little table tennis thing, which is actually only fun, is still there. And it's, it's yeah, <laughs> good, good fun to do it, to see the guys and, smiling, having fun on it. And, and this is and for really Sky Germany, it. isn't it? That's Sky Germany, exactly, yeah. I must just ask you about the darts. Yeah. Which of the current grid were, were good at darts? Can I have a guess? I think it's got to be a Brit, so one of the Brits. No, actually, it was pretty much average, everyone. Um, they were not really into darts. I'm a really big darts fan, playing a lot of darts at home. Was anyone, well, did anyone beat you at darts? Yeah, just on the last, on the last race I was attending to last year, Yuki Tsunoda. <laughs> Yuki beat you at darts. <laughs> Yuki beat me, <laughs> but, but honestly, by just pure luck. I mean, he was like throwing the darts in, in the first game. I think he even did not sometimes hit the dartboard. <laughs> it was quite funny to watch. And then suddenly he hit three darts and, and scored 2018, I think, in, a, in another 25, like a single bull. And I was like, how is this possible? <laughs> and and I just lost out by two points, I think. So, oh um, my goodness! But it was it was fun, you know. It, it's actually it's really cool to see the guys coming to it and and looking at it and saying, "What are we doing here now?" I mean, what is this? This is a different kind of interview. Is there a direct correlation between the good table tennis players and the fastest drivers? That sort of hand-eye coordination, the the competitive nature? No, not not really. Um, I mean, if you look, I think I think. George was the pretty much one of the, the top three worst guys last year. He was like just hitting, I don't know. I mean, hey, but that starts. What about table tennis? Though? But table tennis, he was the Mr. Consistent. I mean, he 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 said he never played on a on a small table. He was only on the on the normal size table tennis, but not much. And when we start playing, you could. I was like pretty sure. Okay, I got to beat him easy because you know he, the balls were too long and he didn't have the feeling for it. And then suddenly he switched on. When it was about points, he was like, boom, I was right there. And it just, I mean, we had one rally, I think, above 30 shots. And he was just playing, 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 getting the balls back, not, not doing many mistakes. I'm guessing the questions from you dried up at that point, right? You were concentrating on the game. Every time when we start <laughs> playing for points, every driver says, no, I don't want to ask answer any questions anymore. I need to concentrate on playing. It's an interesting thing, you, you interviewing all the young drivers. Do, do you think Formula One has a lot of talent, a lot of strength and depth on the grid at the minute? You know, you think of Max, you think of Charles, you think of Lando, you think of George. Do you think this is a golden era for driving talent? And that's the young guys. Of course, you've still got Lewis and Fernando as well. The talents we have on the grid, I mean, looking back to Charles, looking back on, on George, George's history, how they went through the junior categories dominating as well Max coming into Formula One uh, 
it feels like he's turning Formula One upside down at the moment. You know, I mean, the way how how he dominates, how he grew up being so competitive against Lewis, Lewis being the older guy, as well as Alonso being so experienced, still having the hunger and being so motivated to beat the young guys. It's just really interesting to see. As well asking, you know, I mean, was I, I was asking George, what what is the difference when you come from a, a small team like Williams being at the back of the grid to a top team like Mercedes against the big man, Lewis Hamilton? What is he doing different? And, and it was interesting to hear what he was saying, like, you know, the way how he is going into a weekend, super focused, being so precise, understanding the racing, the 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 strategies, how he has to handle his tires and so on. Very interesting to see what, you know, the young guys, when they come up next to uh, the big hero, Lewis Hamilton, how they learn from them and how they very quickly understand what to do and, and adapt to it and, and learn from them and take it on board and do it themselves. And of course, we've got a future talent in Oscar Piastri, uh, coming next year with McLaren. Do you rate Oscar from everything you've seen so far? I mean, he's pretty much on the same route like George and 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 uh, Charles Leclerc. You know, I mean, they, he he dominated uh, and won the championships in all the lower categories. And I think there is no question about about his speed. I think the the difference when you come into Formula One is to deal with the pressure you have in Formula One. The the amount of work, the amount of hours you need to put in. I think this makes the difference and um, we, that's what we need to see at some point. I mean, I, if I remember back to my first Formula One year, I mean, after f five, six races, I felt like I was exhausted already because everything was new to me and it, it, it took so much energy of me and, and I, I spent my energy the wrong way, let's say. Uh, until I ca came into the Sunday race, I was already done because everything in the media I wanted to, to, to be good. I wanted to know everything about in the meetings what's going on try to understand everything, staying fit, training, workout, da, 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 da. And I think this is the big problem for someone who comes new into Formula One. That was at least for me like this, but I mean, in, in, in the new era, I mean, the, the, the young guys, they are, they, they are so well treated by the teams already, you know, they, they come into Formula One and they, they know what to do because they get teached by the teams already up front. I came into Formula One You know, coming from Champ Car, coming from GP2, I had no support from any big team or anything or a young driver program. So I had to learn all myself. Timo, we're going to come on to that. But just on the topic of Oscar Piastri, I wonder yep. how exhausting and how stressful uh, the last few weeks have been for him because of the contract recognition board. You know, he was waiting on their decision to know whether he was going to be an Alpine driver or a Williams driver indeed, or, or, or actually a McLaren driver, which is where he's going to end up in 2023. And you had something similar um, with Toyota and BMW ahead of the 2008 season. Tell us what that experience was like for you. How complicated did it get? How stressful was it? Um, I, I think it wasn't that complicated like it was for Oscar Piastri, because for us it, it was pretty, pretty clear and pretty quickly done. Uh, on that day when we when we had to go to Geneva, um, there was an option from from BMW, and if, uh, if and they didn't take it, and if I had an offer from a team for a race seat, I'm free to go. So I had the offer from Toyota, and then BMW turned up and said, "Now, but you know, we, we we take the we draw the option, let's say, or, or we take the the option of you, and and we want to have you on board next year." There's a test driver, but I said, but we said, but in the contract, it's pretty clear. If I have an offer from a race seat, for for a race seat in 2008, I'm free to go. 
So this whole scenario came up and we had to go at the end to uh, um, the CRB and we were sitting in front of the lawyers and they were like, it was done after 15 minutes. Because I mean, at, at the end they said, why are we here? Because it's, <laughs> the decision is pretty clear. It was that but, straightforward. But, and were you that confident? This is the point. I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, my, my lawyer was confident. My, my manager was confident. But for yourself, you think, you know, not, not reading the contract may be right. And, and of course, at the end, you need to wait until the decision is done and it's official. And that, of course, is stressful. I mean, if you have to go to Geneva, I mean, we were th sitting there with my lawyers, with my uh, manager, even John Howard came up from Toyota and, and the, uh, the other side it was only Monisha Kaltenborn who was at that time lawyer of uh, BMW Sauber and it was an awkward situation, weird, strange and, and I Did you out, feel yeah. you had split loyalties in the way that Oscar you know, has been helped by Alpine on the way up but actually he's seen an opportunity at McLaren and for you BMW had helped you, you'd been, you'd tested for them and you'd won Formula BMW and th there was an opportunity at Toyota. Did you have split loyalties at all? No, because the, the uh, let's say the contract was clear and they, they could not offer me a race seat for 2008 and, and it was clearly written in the contract that I'm free to go, so I had no bad feelings about it. Well, look, let's wind the clock back now to the start of your Formula One career, you arrived in the sport at the height of Schumacher mania. Did that make it easier for a young German driver coming through? Was Were there lots of German companies wanting to support you get involved? I mean, for sure, the, the hype about Michael, um, about Formula One in Germany helped definitely uh, in that generation, my generation, to find support, to find sponsors who get you through the whatever Formula Three GP2 at that time, which cost a lot of money, definitely was a help for me. And I, I mean, when, when I when I grew up, I was watching him in when he just started Formula One, and I never thought I have any uh, any chance to get to Formula One. I mean, this was so far away from me. I was watching it, and and I never. I mean, I, I raced dirt bikes at the beginning, then whatever. We started very late with go karts when I was 14, and I thought, oh, that's fun, and then I went to F3, but even in F3, I never thought I was going to make it to F1, because that seemed to be so far away. Even when you were winning races in Formula even, 3? Yes. It felt being so far away, and then it clicked at some point, you know, I mean, from 2003, I did Formula 3, and in 2004, I was test driver in, in, in Formula 1 with Jordan, and that was a, a really weird feeling and, and unreal to be on a racetrack driving together with the big name, Michael Schumacher. Where did your passion for Formula... Well, where did your passion for racing come from? Actually, my dad. My dad was doing uh, dirt bikes. He was, he was driving go-karts, but just for fun. He never had the support from his parents to, to do anything in motorsport. Uh, and he's just said, I mean, whatever sport my kids are good in and they want to do it, let's say, professional, I'm going to try to support them as much as possible. And that's the way how I came into racing. I mean, I, I started with five on a dirt bike, broke my leg when I was eight, I think. And then I was out for four or five years. And then I came back to go-kart racing through a friend who bought a go-kart. And he said, hey, you want to join us? Come with us to the go-kart track. You can have a go in it. So I drove the first time and the go-kart was straight away quicker than him. Came back to home, said to my dad, man, we need a go-kart. We need to start this. And this is how it happened again. Yeah. 
being lucky at, in in various points in that uh, in that time. Yeah. Well, look, how much luck was there involved in the step up to Formula One? As you say, you win races in Formula Three in 2003 and suddenly you're Jordan's test driver in 2004. And then before you know it, you're actually racing for them. I mean, you know, I, I was driving go-karts for fun. Then at, at one race weekend uh, where I did my ever first race, there was um, Adolf Neubert is his name. He supported Michael in his go-kart time. He was at the racetrack watching me and I, my engine blew up and I had only one engine leading the race by four seconds. So we went to him and said, maybe you have another engine, spare engine for us. Yeah, no, no, but just come to the company next week. We have a talk. So I come to the company with my dad. He says, you know, I watched, you, uh, uh, I watched Timo. Um, I think he has some talent. Uh, I want to support him in the next year. So I was, and we never had the financial possibility to do proper go-kart, go-karting, like European Championship or anything like this. So he supported us, was successful in go-karting, and then this Formula BMW Junior Cup came up where we got support from BMW and ADSE in Germany. So we signed up for this, trying to get support. And my dad has a scaffolding company. I read this and you were, he yes. made you work. Huh? Exactly. Yeah, I had to, <laughs> until I was in, in, in F3, <laughs> when I came back on Sunday night from an F3 race on Monday, I had to show up in the company and had to work, which kept me on the ground, which was good. Um, and with the scaffolding company, we worked at Pirelli in Germany. So there, through, through that, we, we knew the sporting director of Pirelli Germany. And he made us a contract to my manager at that time, Hans Bernd Kamps, who supported me then through my Formula BMW career, F3 into Formula One. And he had a link to Deutsche Post. Deutsche Post was sponsored at Jordan. So this was the whole link up to get through and get the support up to Formula One. And of course, in 2004, one of the things that was going on up and down the grid were these Friday practice sessions. Third car, BAR, McLaren, Jaguar, Jordan, all fielded these cars. And I felt it almost was like a qualifying session among you third drivers, everyone wanting to have the bragging rights. Anthony Davidson, exactly. Alex Burtz, you. Yeah. I mean, how much help did those sessions give you in, in preparing you for Formula One and for the debut that came in Montreal later in the year? I mean, of course, it was it was definitely helping me a lot. First of all, learning the tracks, learning to work with the team, driving the cars in various configurations, high fuel, low fuel, qualifying mode, and so on and so on. So that was definitely a, a very good tool and help for young drivers coming in, showing their talent. Is it still possible in, in these days? I don't know. I mean, the, you know, now you have simulators which are as good as the real world, nearly, where you can show... But it's not pace, the same. But it's it? not the same, of course. That's the point. I mean, it's a different if it's a different scenario if you're in a real car on a real track at a race weekend. It's a totally different scenario. So, of course, for the younger for the young guys, it would be good to to do some some laps on a race weekend right next to the big guys, to the big names. So Montreal, you end up replacing Giorgio Pantano, my How hero, by the way, in go kart times. He was so quick. Ah, oh, he was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute hero for me. But what happened? Yeah, I mean, I just got this uh, the call on on Saturday morning, standing in the bathroom, brushing my teeth, and I look on my cell phone, and it's Eddie Jordan calling me. And typical Eddie said, "Come to the track, you need to race." Uh, what do you mean? I need to race? You're gonna replace Giorgio. You will. You're gonna drive this weekend. I cannot really remember what what happened on on that day because everything went so quickly. I just tried to do as good as possible. At the end, the next thing I I know is. 
I finished P11, then forecast got disqualified, if I remember right. Yeah, the two Williams is the, the two, two Williams Williams Toyotas. Toyotas. Brakes, yep. And then uh, the next thing is Eddie taking me out for dinner and being the happiest man because we scored two points, which mean means for the team a lot of money at the end. And he was the happiest man. And uh, another highlight was standing next to Norbert Hauk from Mercedes at that time and Michael and his wife Corinna having a drink somewhere in Canada, in Montreal, uh, after the Grand Prix on Sunday, which was just a unreal weekend for me. Yeah? I mean, you're a driver who scored podiums in Formula One, but I'm just looking at you retelling <laughs> that story and the smile on your face. It's... Yeah, because it of was all just... all the races you've done in your career, that that one... That one for sure is one, one of the highlights, but uh, there are other races as well. I mean, the podiums on in, in Budapest 2008 was very special coming from a bad weekend in Hockenheim where I crashed one week before really heavily being a, a night in, in hospital and then being the next weekend on, on the podium was was pretty much special as well but of course I mean this you know that that story about Montreal you, you, the first Grand Prix uh, was just outstanding I mean <laughs> I mean the whole year was anyway good fun with Eddie John I mean you know him he's a character he's a he's a really good guy and uh, is he good a lot with of drivers yeah, I mean, he tells you the truth. I mean, if if you really do a mistake, he kicks your ass big time. There is no, he has no, no problem with that. He's straightforward. How did the other drivers greet you when you made your debut in Canada? I mean, you say you hung out with Michael Schumacher afterwards. Was he helpful in any way? No, he, I mean, they were just coming up and said, "Man, enjoy your race, enjoy enjoy your first Grand Prix, and uh, take it easy, and so on." But there was not much time, you know. I was like just running around, trying <laughs> to understand what I have to do, trying to understand any strategy. So, Timo, you have that phenomenal debut, points on your debut. And then at the end of the year, the F1 opportunities dry up. Tell us about the disappointment of not landing a race seat in 2005. Yeah, that was, that was the very first time where I uh, was yeah, where I was involved in those political games. The first, very first time. I mean, Eddie showed up in uh, China uh, where there was a talk talks about another driver who could like take over and then it was like yeah if you bring a, bring me more money let's say you can have the seat and so on so there was a, some some political games going on then the team got sold turning from 2004 to 2005 to Midland so the owners had different different views and wanted to um, yeah wanted to have different drivers with financial background and that's what I didn't have so I had to go a different route through America doing champ cars which was another great year for me um, but it was it was hard to accept that you know it's not the talent it's it's more the money and makes that was the, the first realization for you the re I mean really being in yeah I mean I knew before that's that's part of Formula One but being right in the middle of the game like this is a different scenario and then you know it's not only talent it's political stuff and financial background you need to have at some point so why champ car I mean, and for listeners who aren't aware, Champ Car was an American open wheel racing series that raced on ovals and conventional racetracks. But I mean, why not GP2? There were other steps you could have taken within Europe. I mean, my, my manager at the time, you know, I mean, GP2 was just coming in uh, as a new championship in 2005. And we were just untrue about it. And it was for my, for my personally, the next step, I think my manager just threw me into America, said, here's the ticket, go enjoy your time uh, learn about racing and that's what i did over there this was proper proper open wheel wheel to wheel racing um, and how different were the cars to drive to oh, form, compared to formula completely one completely different 
no power steering or no proper power steering, seven-speed uh, um, gearbox, sequential, so nothing, no pedals on the steering wheel, street tracks like Long Beach, Mexico City trying to do a baseball stadium, different what it's now, slightly different. Did you like the vibe, the whole American yes, racing scene? Totally, I really loved it. It was, it was just totally different to Formula One, very open, very easy, pure racing, pure racing. What uh, I missed in the, in the year 2004, or which I realized again in 2005, what's, that's really what I love, you know, being on a, on a racetrack, uh, spending time with the mechanics, open tent, the, the fans can walk in, whatever. It was just open, very, very easy, very good. And it, as soon as the helmet was on, the, the racing was just super hard, super aggressive. I mean, against Paul Tracy, uh, guys like this. He's I mean, a hard guy. He was just, uh, at one test, I was like super quick in the test. Being every time when I was on track in the top three, being quicker than him. And this was in, in Fontana where the super speedway is and there's like an, an infield road course. Um, and we had like a double chicane where they stacked up tires to mark, let's say, the chicane. And I go out in the evening on, on new tires. Paul Tracy goes out, parks the car right in the middle of the chicane. And my first lap when I came around, I said, okay, maybe he spun, whatever. I had to abort my lap, take a gap to him, next, next lap. I come to the chicane again. He parks the car again there. I said, what the hell is going on? So he just played the game because he knew I was quick and he didn't want me to be on top of the timesheets. He just screwed my last run on new tires, just stopping every time in the chicane until lap six or seven when my tires were off. Did you say anything? No, he just, he just ignored me. He did not even talk to me. He did not even look at me. Then we come to the race in Monterey, second race quite similar in qualifying he blocked me again drove me off the track stuff like this and at some point I'd, on the inlap we were on the inlap to, uh, uh, after qualifying I launched my car into him next to him broke his side pod everything was damaged I think my front suspension was even damaged I come back to the business I was sure he gonna, he's coming to my car and it's gonna hit me proper and he turns up and says man this is really what I like that was proper and that was the first time he talked to me. Like, that was proper. That's what I like. And walked off. What a great story. Yeah, it's just a good guy, a good fun guy. You do that year in America. In fact, you finish on the podium in Montreal. Second year in a row. You've had a great race Absolutely, uh, yeah. at the circuit, Gilles Villeneuve. But why not then make a career in America? You clearly made an impact over there. People respected you. They knew you were quick. Why the move back to Europe? In these days, Chemka or IndyCar was split in two series. It was the Indy Racing League, IRL, and Chemka. And Chemka at that time just was financially not in the best situations. The teams had struggled. And um, it started again, you know, you needed to have proper budget to get into a team. Even the top teams struggled to have, to have budget, to have funding from sponsors. And IRL, let's say, was the better championship. And then we realized that GP2 is the way to go to come. You know, my goal was at that stage was then, for, of course, Formula One. That didn't change even when you were in yeah, America, right? That didn't change, yeah. So we decided to come to come back to Europe, try to do GP2 and make the step into Formula One. And my goodness, did it work? It did, but I was very close to stop again my career in 2006 in Monaco because I was driving for BCN the first half of the season and the car was just so bad we were just off 
I would say between a half a second and a second all the time. We were like, I had no chance. The car was just, sometimes I was driving out, the steering wheel was not straight. I had to do a whole race weekend in Imola where the steering wheel was left hand side down. They could not fix it. I have no idea <laughs> why they couldn't fix that. And I came to Monaco and I said, okay, this could be the last chance to show as a driver, to make a difference as a driver. So qualifying finished P17, far off, starting the race. And by luck, we came through with a safety car scenario, whatever it was, we were P4. And then three laps before the end, the gearbox blew up and I finished the race uh, right in front of the tunnel, walked back and I called my dad and I said, man, I'm back on Monday again as a scaffolder. I, I give up on this. They don't want me in F1. I was 100% sure that's it. That's game over. Because I, I, but that was my hope. Monaco, you can make a difference as a driver. But if the car is that far off, impossible. But that was the lucky part um, we were talking to iSport before the before the season started, but we were like two weeks too late. They signed up Ernesto Viso and Tristan Gomendi. But we were still in contact with Paul Jackson um, and, and the whole team. And both cars were out in lap one. So he had nothing to do then stopping lap times on the swimming pool area. So he took, took the section swimming pool to Raskas and he was stopping every driver, taking the, the, the times. And I was the only guy who was as close as possible to, to Lewis, but only 200s off. And his driver, Tristan Gomendi, had financial problems and he was out of, out of the race or out of the season after Monaco. So I flew back on Monday, already in my mind, giving up on this, doing something else. Paul Jackson calls up and says, listen, you want to drive for me next race weekend or the next race in Silverstone? And I say, what the hell? He's going, of course I would. So we're talking to the, my manager, they get in contact, find an agreement. I turn up in... Uh, in Silverstone, we go out uh, having a chat with this guy, with the guys. I never met them before, proper. Richard Selvin was my engineer, Oliver Gavin, the other one from the other car. And then I was, I was talking to, to them and I explained them how my car was reacting on the race weekend in, in Monaco and so on and never had a straight steering wheel. They were looking at me and said, what the hell? And just by talking to them, I had so much confidence in this team. Then I walked out on Thursday from, from that restaurant and I called my manager and said, man, I promise you that's the turnaround. We're going to be on the podium tomorrow or in the top five for sure. He said, yeah, but you never drove the car. I said, honestly, the way how, they, how their logic is about racing, it must work. There is no excuse. It must work. I drive out of the pit lane. I turn in to the S's. And on the way down to Cops on the hangar straight, I'm on the radar saying, man, this car is unreal. And I was on cold tires, I had zero grip, but I could feel already how good this car is, how good it's, the setup is, how, they, how good they understand this car. And what did we do? We finished on the podium. Um, finished second. I finished second. Uh, on race two, I had to start from the back, spun once and still managed to be in the top five, I think. And in the second half of the season, scored more points than Lewis. Straight away, the next race in Magnico, we won. It was an extraordinary turnaround for you. Yeah. Now, talking, comparing cars, also in 2006, you tested for BMW Sauber in Spain twice. How did that car compare to the Jordan of 2004? Was it night and day? Oh, yeah. Totally different. Uh, uh, much more or much easier to drive. Very easy to understand. I mean, the 2004 Jordan was just aerodynamically just very inconsistent you never knew what's going to happen in the next corner let's say and that car was super stable super easy to drive 
all the systems, everything was just the way the, how the engineers were working with you it was just different. I mean, of course, we you know with more experience things get easier, but you straight away could feel the potential of the car. Yeah. And then you signed to be the BMW Sauber test driver for 2007. You're yeah. staying with iSport, and so suddenly, less than a year after you thought it was all over at Monaco it's massively back on and could you yeah. feel the formula one dream just you could almost touch it again yeah i mean 2007 definitely i mean when we when we were like leading in in monaco i think in monaco we were leading by 30 points already in front of lucas di grassi and i remember i mean still people were already or, or journalists were already saying yeah man you're through you won this championship already I said, never no way i mean it's a long way to go and then you know of course the, the first talk started very early to toyota and then the the pressure came, you know, because they want you know you need to win this championship. I mean, without that, there is no no chance for a race seat. And of course, the pressure was then on. And suddenly, my luck started to disappear. I remember this this w awkward situation when I drove up in Spa in the morning. It was very cold, and we had no tire warmer. So you you know you just drive carefully into the starting grid, on the way to the grid, and then I try to warm up my tires and I look in the mirror and then I see this car coming sideways, turning to the left, spinning in front of me and like in slow motion, runs into my car, damaged my front suspension and I parked the car at the camel straight, not even making it to the grid. And I was sitting there for five minutes and I said to me, I'm out, I'm out. What do you mean you are out? I said, I am out. This idiot drove into, my, I don't know who it was, he drove into my car, my front suspension is damaged. I'm, it's game over. So I come to the last race in Valencia, two points ahead of Lucas Di Grassi, having like alternator problems in Budapest, leading the race and stuff like this. So, that, and I was like, and then the pressure comes. Your future quite literally depended on that one race weekend. I mean, maybe that was only the, the pressure from Toyota trying to build up and see how I handled the, the pressure. I don't know. But they said every time, you know, you need to win the championship. Otherwise, we, there are no possibility for you next year. So, and then at the end... Uh, I won it uh, in Valencia in the last race. And of course, you then go to the CLB, you, you yeah. get the drive with Toyota, 2008-2009, uh, although it was a three-year deal originally, is that right? Two, and two years and, and one year, uh, another, or let's say another option, yeah. What did Toyota get right and what did they get wrong about Formula One? I think, I mean, the decisions took just too long, you know. Um, there was no clear, let's say, captain steering the ship taking decisions i mean that had to be, be covered by japan we had s solutions for the car i mean i remember that rear wing in 2008 where there was this this gray area where you could you could fill in this letterbox they call it on the rear wings like a slot and we had like a really clever idea and then in the wind tunnel it looked really promising we did straight line tests it was super efficient uh ready to go for racing and then suddenly Japan pulled the plug because they said it's too much of a gray area we don't want to be disqualified like they were in the rally times once where they sort of cheated they never wanted to get into that situation again so Japan pulled the plug the thing was ready to go racing and at the end we, we couldn't do it and it would have you know these little things they happened a couple of times frustrating that, that, for you what did they get right I mean the possibilities we had at, at Cologne uh, in, in, in the company they were insane as I mean, in the, the facilities? Facilities the were... Budget. Uh, yes, facilities, budget. There were no excuse. Everything was there to, to win multiple world championships. And do you think if they'd stayed 
I mean, everyone says the 2009 car was a very good car. The 2010 was the, the car to, to fight for, definitely for the top three. I mean, I know guys who, who went from Toyota to Ferrari when, when Toyota pulled the plug and the aero data they knew from Toyota at that time, they were definitely quite a step ahead of Ferrari. And, and they made a big step on the engine because the engine definitely was a, a limiting factor when they came from the V10 to the V8. Uh, I think the best, best example was Monza here in, in 2009. Uh, the four Toyota cars were in the last two rows. Made a big improvement for 2010 and this was all adding up for having a good chance and a good car. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. This extraordinary Hungara Ring circuit delivers up its seventh different winner in seven years. Heike Kovalainen wins the Hungarian Grand Prix, his first ever Grand Prix victory. I'm sure there'll be plenty more, but what an extraordinary Grand Prix with Felipe Massa retiring three laps from the end. Timo Glock, a heroic second place. Timo Glock punching well and truly above his weight in the Toyota. Timo, you got your first podium in Hungary 2008. After such a tough journey to the top, how did that moment feel? That felt like suddenly being 50 kilos lighter. Coming from Hockenheim, the race, uh, there was just one week between the two races. I had a big accident in the last corner where the suspension broke. Spent one night in the hospital and, and just came to, uh, to Budapest. And somehow, I don't know, I mean, the track just suited our car. Uh, there was not, nothing about top speed, it was all about downforce. And the 2008 Toyota had proper downforce, I would say. And from lap one on, I knew that's going to be a chance to be in the top five here. The car was just really good. I really liked the circuit. I just had the flow from lap one on. It felt like I think I was in every session quicker than Jano truly. And I just realized, man, this is a good, good chance to, to score some proper points. But it was just nice, really good, really good feeling. But as well, like, you know, everything happened so quickly after the race, you could not really enjoy because I mean, the first time on the podium, the mechanics went mad, uh, but it was just good, good feeling, very good feeling. And what did it mean to Toyota? I mean, of course, there was definitely a, a breakthrough, let's say, for me, as well for them, you know, confirmation we picked the right guy, let's say, um, because at the beginning of the season, I really struggled to, to keep up with Jano, especially in qualifying, because he's just a pure qualifier and one of the best qualifiers I ever had to, uh, to fight against. And yeah, and then I just realized race by race, understood more what I have to do over a race weekend, how to treat the car, how to work with my mechanics, with my engineers. And then it added up and, and got better and better through the year. Decent party on the Sunday night. You know, you, you finished seventh for Jordan in Montreal 2004 and you go out to dinner with EJ. What, what happened on, in, uh, after that podium? N not such a big party because I was just pretty exhausted after... <laughs> After having the crash in in, uh, in Hockenheim and the whole stress, let's say, over that, that weekend and the emotions, everything, I just enjoyed a good dinner, had a few drinks, but then went back to the hotel. Now, 2008 World Championship goes down to the wire. Three to go in what has been a truly dramatic World Championship. Oh, it's it's now raining up. hard, and that means Glock is going to be in trouble. He's in fourth place, and with just two laps to go, the question now is can Timo Glock in the Toyota keep it on the island? If he cannot, then Hamilton might have a chance of getting the title back. At the moment, sixth will not do it for him. And only one lap remains. Glock's uh, sector times are perfectly healthy on the dry tyre. He's doing fine. And the championship is slipping away from Lewis Hamilton. 
You played an innocent part in what happened there between Lewis Hamilton and Felipe Massa. How do you reflect on everything associated to that race now, both on track and off track? I mean, on track, I just try to do my job as good as possible. But I remember really clearly the last three to four laps because to me they was it was clear in what direction it's gonna go. I, I mean, it was not clear to me that I'm gonna decide a championship. But the way I mean, we were like P7 and P9, I think, and then we decided. I mean, this this cloud came over the track, and I said like three laps towards the end. I said, guys, I think it's gonna end up in a disaster because this cloud will arrive two or one lap towards the end. And if it's raining, it's gonna be chaotic. And they said, yeah, if the first guy are changing to intermediate tires, da, 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 we're gonna take the risk and we stay out. We have nothing to lose. Second to last lap, it starts already raining in the last corner. And I said, guys, I need to come in because I'm not, I mean, the, you could see literally the rain, how much it was, just 200 meters away moving very quickly to the track. And I said, guys, I need to come in now. It's impossible. I'm not going to survive that last lap. It's impossible. Tires cooling out already, you know, the groove tires. And they said, you cannot come in. It's impossible because the gates were already built up for the podium ceremony. And there were people already freaking out because Massa was, at that time, was world champion. They said, you need to stay out. You cannot come in. So I had to stay out, come to the first corner, already wet, being nowhere, just trying to survive. You're uh, P4 at that point. Uh, P4 at that point. Yeah, I mean, I never had the information in, in, in what scenario I'm in and what's going to happen in the last lap, if they're going to catch me or not. I just tried to survive. And then, you know, a bunch of cars overtaking me, Kopi car who was a lap down, Fettel overtakes me, Hamilton overtakes me, and I finish P6. It's all about uh, these last few corners now. We're expecting Massa any time now. He comes through to claim his sixth victory of the season. He has done everything he needed to do. And we wait now to find out who will be the world champion of 2008. Can Hamilton do anything? Only a few corners to go now. And desperation starts to creep in for Lewis Hamilton. Raikkonen's third. And that's, is that clock? Is that clock going slowly? It is, that's it's clock. Oh my goodness me, Hamilton's back in position again. Fifth place, which is all he needs to do to become yes. the 2008 Formula One world champion, Lewis Hamilton. Clock's last lap, a 144.7. Either he just fell off the cliff with grip from those dry tyres, just a bit too much rain. And uh, yeah, Glock lost 18 seconds on the last lap. Lewis Hamilton is the world champion. Unbelievable. How difficult was it to keep the car on the track uh, on you, that last lap? If you watch the onboard, <laughs> which... <laughs> Your rally drove him. <laughs> yeah, it was just uh, trying to survive. I mean, very slippery uh, with these groove tyres. When As soon they cool cooled out they had no grip zero grip so like when the summer tires in on snow let's say on ice funny enough my engineer just told me that lewis hamill is world champion but he didn't tell me that i decided the championship so i come back i think you're being unfair on yourself to say you decided the championship I mean, yeah, you know I mean, you've got was, singapore of when course ferrari had the, yeah. the refueling problem you've got it's hungary true. that we've already talked about world championships are not won and lost yeah in, in one, one race <laughs> but let's say in that situation, I... But you I, tell the fans that. <laughs> <laughs> so I came back to the, to the pit. So we, we stopped before the uphill section to the pit lane. 
uh, with all, and funny enough, Louis Hamilton stops in front of me. <laughs> so what I do, I go there, give him a handshake and say, well done, man. Congratulations to your world championship in front of, I don't know how many thousand Brazilian spectators. Then I walk up to the scales and this whole bunch of journalists and ph photographers comes, runs down. So I go to the side because, of course, I want to go to Lewis Hamilton, world chairman. But they all come to me <laughs> and ask me these questions like, was this on purpose? Did you help Lewis? Why did you help Lewis? You decided the championship. And I was like, what the hell? You, what's going on here? And then my physiotherapist comes to me and takes me, runs up with me to the scales. I go to the scales runs back to me to the hospitality, locks me in the room and tells me what happened. <laughs> so then I understood what's going on. And this whole, I mean, I still remember my mechanics got thrown from, from the paddock. Like people were throwing stuff down to everyone who had a Toyota shirt on. Uh, I got a uh, police escort from the track to the hotel, from the hotel the next morning to the plane, to the airport, into the plane. They walked with me into the plane. Completely. What about when you were at the track? Did you get... I just switched you just to hit. different clothes and I just went back to the hotel as soon as possible. Did you speak to Massa that night, Sunday no, night? not for 10 years. You didn't speak to Felipe for 10 years? Not for 10 years. Why? Just I don't know. I, I thought if I talk to him, he will kill me. I don't know. I mean, funny enough, I mean, this is a funny story. Last year in Mexico... I'm at the, uh, from Sky, on, on the Skypad, we call it, showing an onboard lab. And then Felipe Massa walks by and waves to me. And I look at him and I was like turning around. Is he, does he mean someone else? Does he mean, is he waving to me? <laughs> so he waved to me and I waved back and I was like, eh, okay. So then we were doing the onboard and my uh, cameraman, Toby, you should ask him for an interview. And I said, yeah, of course, I asked him for an interview. For sure not. Then I walked back and I said, okay, next week is the Brazilian GP. Why should we not do an interview with Felipe Massa in Brazil about that championship deciding moment? So I sent Ruins Barrichello a message. Could you give me the phone number from Felipe? And do you think he would talk to me? I said, of course he would talk to you. Why not? I said, I mean, because of 2008. No, 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 easy. So I sent him a text. Felipe replies, super friendly. Hey, mate, no problem. Leg, of course, we can do an interview. That's good. That's a really good idea. Let's talk about that. And now, then I walk uh, into the TV compound. Martin Brundle comes up and I say, he's the right guy to do the interview. The famous words is that clock. <laughs> so I ask him, would you be up for an interview? And he interviewed us in, in Brazil, which was super emotional from both sides. And Felipe never saw this onboard camera from me in that last lap. The first time last year in, in Brazil. So, and then he, he really understood in what position I was in. And from that moment on, uh, it was just a really cool relationship. He, the next race, uh, we saw each other again, comes up and invites me for uh, the stocker race in Brazil with him together because they have this- Teammates. Yes. So they have in, in, in the stocker championship, the first race, they share one car uh, with a driver they invite, let's say a European driver, whoever. So he asked me and I said, man, if, if I have no commitments with BMW, of course, I come over. So I flew over. We did the race together. He qualifies the car, does one race, uh, race one, and I do race two. Unfortunately, in race one, the gearbox failed and I couldn't do race two. But yeah, I mean, since that... So he's we have been really completely good... cool with you? Every... Absolutely. Totally do you, easy. Do I you mean... regret waiting so long to talk to him? Uh, I mean, I, I 
don't regret it. I mean, of course, I could have talked to him earlier, but the way how it happened, I think the story was even better. Um, you know, and then he invited me uh, to his house. We had a, we had dinner with his family. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm still, I still, and I told this to his dad. As I, it's so painful still to see this moment where he was celebrating his son for world champion in Brazil and then getting told it's not happening. This face, the, the, the way how he looked into the camera, I will never forget. And this is what I told him. I said, and I still have goosebumps when I think about it. And it was just a really nice weekend, I have to say. I really enjoyed this. Um, and hopefully we can do it again together. Let's see. Did I read that you got a lot of abuse letters sent, sent to yeah. your house? Uh, that was the case. I mean, really shocking uh, how people can treat you um, in in a way where you where even my parents were scared. I mean, getting letters back home, you know, uh, uh, fans saying you, you know you should ban, you should be banned from racing. Uh, even people saying uh, the guy should be killed and stuff like this is not nice and. And it took long, I mean, very long. And, and every time when, I, when the Brazilian race came up, I mean, my Twitter account exploded. Uh, it's still the case sometimes. Um, Even it, it now? Dropped. Yeah, I mean, now, now it's more the positive, the funny stuff, like the, the, the famous words, is that clock, uh, comes up most of the time. Um, but it changed quite a lot when the, the onboard came out. I don't know why Formula 1 was waiting five years for it, but <laughs> when, that, when that came out, it... it changed a lot of minds a lot of lot of people's mind yeah. Timo what, what about your mind how did that whole experience affect you mentally and did it not your confidence in the car in any way it didn't change my confidence in myself I just couldn't understand why people thought I would help or I would have made made Lewis world champion I was driving for Toyota why should I make Lewis world champion there was no way that I could have been involved in anything because I just drove my race and I tried to make the best out of it so I, I it felt I couldn't accept or I, I could not understand why people were thinking I did it on purpose I had no clue where I was in the race have you ever talked to Lewis about that race not really no somehow in the last two race weekends when I was at the track I, I, I met him in spa I walk in uh, through the gate and I, and I just looked on my phone and then someone says, hey, Timo, how are you? And I was looking left, right, and I, then it's Louis. I said, hi, Louis. <laughs> you know, didn't talk to, to him since I don't know how many, how many years, let's say. Now I met him when I played, played against George, you know, having a quick sort of chat. But I don't know, he's, you know, he's in his, in his world when he's on a race weekend and he feels like he doesn't want to be attacked by someone, let's say, or has a little chat in and I don't want to dis disturb him in his in, in the way how he approaches his weekend so I would never go there and would ask him to have a chat with him about 2008 now you know if it happens it happens if not it doesn't well look let's talk 2009 Let, let's talk some positives your best season in Formula One and there is a few races I wanted to ask you about first of all Malaysia remember that monsoon and the race was stopped after 32 laps uh, you finished third, another podium. Were they the worst conditions you've ever experienced in a racing car? Pretty much, yeah. Um, actually, on track, we finished second, but the result was was taken the lap before, let's say. 
and this was actually the the weekend or the race where we could have scored the first win for Toyota because we came out of the box and I was just right behind Jensen and I was quicker than him in that monsoon rain <laughs> and I was just right on his tail and then they called called the, or they pulled the red flag out and I was close I was confident that I can overtake him um unfortunately it didn't happen so um but funny enough the the whole strategy calls were quite nice because I did every every time the opposite what everyone else did because you could see that the rain is coming and if it comes it would have been a massive yeah monsoon let's say but somehow it started drizzling everyone went on 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 heavy rain tires and I went on intermediates went through the field everyone saw oh man this guy is quick everyone comes in changes from, from uh, heavy rain tires to intermediates then the rain comes down i go in and go to to heavy rain tires and then i was p2 if spots maybes but had you won that race how might it have changed things for you and do you think toyota would have stayed in formula one yeah this is this is sort of the the talk which happened a lot of times if you know if toyota would have won the race maybe they stayed in would have stayed in formula one but i don't know but then another opportunity comes along very soon afterwards in Bahrain. You qualify on the front row. We're yeah. going well until I think you put the hard tyre on in the race and, and fell backwards. But do you see that as another opportunity for a win that slipped away? Yeah, I mean, there, I, for, I mean, qualifying, we definitely had the pace. Strategy-wise, we had to come in early. I think there was still the case where you had to qualify in Q3 with the few load you start the race. So and we were we were just two three laps short, let's say, to compare to 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 the other guys, and I had to come in before Jano had to come in. They put on the hard tire. They realized in my car it didn't work, so I dropped out. And you know everyone else realized, okay, we're not gonna go on the hard tire because Glock is nowhere. We uh, we're gonna change our strategy, and that was the reason why we we dropped back. Uh, Jano still had a good chance, I think, to win the race, but at some point we just did not have the pace in the race to be the other guys um, and being short in the first stint on fuel didn't help Lewis Hamilton wins for McLaren in Singapore Timo Glock chases it home in second equals his best result in Formula 1 seemingly available on the driver's market how impressive will this be and how many people will come talking to him about 2010 Singapore where you finished second the opening lap you overtook Alonso in a very opportunistic move did I yeah you did <laughs> let me remind you but I felt you know another podium did you feel at that point there was some momentum building I definitely felt uh, the momentum but I realized already you could hear the uh, the talks that um, Toyota could step out of Formula 1 this was already happening around Singapore, you could. There were the first sort of uh, rumors about it, so it felt great. But in the same time, you know, you could. It felt strange because you knew uh, it's a weird situation, and and Toyota could pull the plug at the end of the year. Did you feel quite insecure about that, in terms of because of course it's going to massively affect your future? Yeah, I mean, I've, that was definitely one point. But at the same time, I was talking to to Renault at this stage. They were very interesting signing me next to Robert Kubica. So in parallel, we were talking to them. Um, that was another awkward situation until until Abu Dhabi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, for sure. After Singapore, 
it felt great to be on the podium again. Uh, it felt unsecure knowing the future about Toyota, but you know, on, on the same and on, on, on the other side, I was talking to Renault and I had, had quite confident they're going to sign me up for for 2010. And then, did did your crash at Suzuka affect Renault's interest in you? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, the, the the biggest effect was, I mean, we were clear after after Japan. We had a meeting in Japan where everything was pretty much done. And, you know, then it's about lawyers and you need, you need to do the fine-tuning about contracts and stuff like this. But actually, I had a, a call in, in Abu Dhabi where I turned up again, watching the race and actually signing the deal with Renault was, was the plan. <laughs> but then I had this phone call from McLaren. And they were interested talking to me. And then I had to talk to McLaren with, you know, German manufacturer behind with Mercedes a German driver that would be really interesting and I said I'm very close with, with Renault we should you know we're signing the deal very soon and then yeah there was like sort of this delay uh, where they said yeah, if you, oh, can you delay it maybe one or two days and let's you know let's have a proper chat about it so I had a chat with them managed somehow to postpone the signing with Renault it was actually that you know the, the plan was that I fly out to England and have a meeting in England at McLaren. For some reason on Tuesday, I never heard about it again anymore about McLaren. Toyota pulling the plug and then suddenly Renault decided to step out of the Formula 1 World Championship. So I was standing there with nothing in my hands anymore. So should I have signed? I mean, I could have signed on Sunday in, in Abu Dhabi with Renault. Um, I mean, of course, if they would have uh, and they pulled the plug, I mean, the question is if I would have still been in the team with uh, Jenny Capital at the end of the where would they, they they took over in 2010? I mean, I think I would have still have had the contract, a valid one, but you never know. But this was a very difficult situation for me. You know, having having a very good contract in your hand, then having a phone call, you postpone it for two days, and then suddenly you're there and having nothing because at the time, McLaren signed up with Vodafone as a team sponsor, and they wanted to have two British drivers, which was Lewis and Jensen Button. And I was out of the deal. <laughs> out of two deals? Out of two deals, yeah. Were McLaren not even interested in a third driver role? Or were you not interested? There was suddenly no talks anymore. There was suddenly no one answering a phone anymore. So and then I was just trying to get somehow a, a deal done. And funny enough, Mark Heinz called me. He was long time... Uh, with Lewis? With Lewis, working with Lewis in, in the past years. Called me if I would be interested in this project. I said... Yeah, let me know what it is and let's have a chat. And, and what about Mercedes? Because, of course, they buy Braun at that time. Were there any conversations in that direction? No. Or was it, it was Renault and McLaren? Yeah. So, look, Virgin is obviously a much smaller team than Toyota. It's 2010. What were the most obvious differences between the team's track side? I mean, track side, it was just the, the operation itself, the possibilities uh, at Toyota were like unlimited and at Virgin everything was limited at the end you know because we we just didn't have we didn't have the budget to develop the car uh, race to race they really had to think about what they do what they where they're going to spend the money how they spend the money and so on so it was a totally different scenario and totally different way of working with an, with a Formula 1 team and you needed to be there to keep your name in the game in the hope that a big team would exactly, yeah. come and pick you up. Yeah. But and how difficult know, uh, was it to go from challenging for wins, scoring podiums, to then suddenly 
being at the back? Uh, tough. Uh uh, tough when you realize, I mean, I, I, for me, it was clear after the first test. When I saw the car the first time, it was clear, okay, that that's a long way to go. Um, there is only one chance. You, you, you know, you, you try it, you stick, you stick with the team, you try to do your best and hope that they're going to develop the car and, and you make good progress. But after the first test, it was clear. I mean, we were like five seconds of the pace. Uh, that's not going to happen. And um, then I had a bit of let's say hope when Pat Simmons joined the team uh, when it w went from Virgin to Russia had a bit more let's say funding a bit more money um, and uh, Pat Simmons joined and he was just you know very good guy trying to get the maximum out of the package we had and we went in the right directions but still uh, you know financially we did not have the chance to make the big steps but you re-signing with the team on a, on a longer term deal did that coincide with the arrival of Pat? Uh, that was one part and the the um, cooperation with McLaren where we could use their wind tunnel plus the simulator uh, was one part to do, uh, let's say, a long-term deal with them, yeah. I did enjoy, uh, I think it was 2012, I did enjoy watching you battle with Michael Schumacher at a couple of races. <laughs> I think it was Korea. Was Korea one of the races? That must have been, yeah. that must have been a... a, a a pretty cool moment for you you know we've already talked about yeah. Schumacher you watching him when when you were a kid and suddenly you're arguing over the same piece of racetrack absolutely I mean we we had a lot of fun in 2012 on the track and I spent a lot of time with him we were going cycling and stuff like this together he, he took me a couple of times in in his plane you know like for example Korea because you know if you fly to the normal let's say airport it's another four and a half hour drive if you oh yes airport. i remember <laughs> exactly <laughs> so if you have like sort of a, a, a private with the private Straight plane, to you, you, yeah you, you go you go right next to the track sometimes you had the uh, the deal that when the practice is over and you drive back to the track if you meet each other on track we're gonna as sideways as possible in the formula one because of going out of the corner you know being sideways and this was just pure fun i mean i was every time when the the uh, the Jacket flag was out. I was asking, "Where's Where's Michael Schumacher on track? Where's Michael Schumacher on track?" And they were asking, "Why you ask every time? About, ah, we have a special deal. We have a special deal." So this was really fun. I mean, and and um, yeah, enjoyed that time with him a lot. Uh, I learned a lot from him. And um, what did you learn from Michael Schumacher? Just the way how he is. He was straightforward, straight. He very very straightforward. Um, I mean, we were playing we were playing chess a lot of times in the airplane. And I was, uh, was his, his physiotherapist, Kai, who is now a physio of Mick, Michael and myself playing each other all the time. So I was playing against Kai and he made a mistake. Uh, I made a mistake before and I said, oh, sorry, I just went the wrong. Can I move back? And he allowed me to do it with the, the queen, let's say. So one game later, he does a mistake and I just say, no, you don't get it back. That was a stupid mistake by fun, you know, because the game was anyway sort of over. On the way back in the airplane, Michael comes to me and says, that was definitely not right what he did yesterday. And I said, what do you mean yesterday? It was the chess game. I said, what What happened at the chess game? I didn't even know anymore. And he was like, you, you know, you do a mistake. Kai offers you the chance to take the queen back. He does one game later, he does the mistake. And you don't give him the, the queen back. That's not right. You should think about that. <laughs> and I was like, man, this was fun anyway because the game was done he lost anyway there was no chance I don't care that was not right point taken I said, 
all right, okay. <laughs> Stuff so like, 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 like the headmaster. Yeah, very competitive. Everything what we did had to be done in a, in a competitive way. We played billiard, we played whatever, and the guy who lost had to do 10 push-ups or 20 push-ups and stuff. like. It was just enjoyable. Nice to see someone like him being a seven-time world champion, still being super competitive in everything what he does. Who was better on a bike, you or him? That depended. That was, that was quite different. Sometimes I was stronger than him, and, and then they had a period where he was driving a lot on the, on the bike, and then he destroyed me. And the other way around, depending on the schedule, let's say how many times, how many kilometers we could do on the bike. Do you see a lot of similarities between Mick and Michael? Yes. Mannerisms or just I mean, the I, way they go about? Would, would Mick pick you up on, uh, on that chess game? Yeah, we're playing, we're playing chess <laughs> as well. We played, we played a couple of times as well. I, wa I was shocked. I still remember that one go-kart race where he asked me to come with him, Mick. He asked me to come to Kristianstad, to European Championship. And I never saw him karting before. Drive out of the box, I walk to the grandstand, and then there are like 30 go-karts coming towards me. Instantly I knew where Mick is. I mean, of course I knew the helmet, but the way how he was sitting in that go-kart, if he would have had a red helmet, I would have said, this is Michael. You could see the way how he was sitting in the car, how he was moving, how he was handling the go-kart, how he was watching the other guys how he was going through the field it was Michael one-to-one -one, just in a green helmet or a yellow helmet let's say do you think Mick's done enough to stay in Formula 1 next year in Zandvoort uh, that qualifying result uh, was pretty impressive I think with the pressure he has at the moment he really delivered it on this weekend since he scored his first points he's delivering he's showing the pace he's showing the progress this is the important thing he, he's not, it seems like he's not not stopping you know is there's no standstill it's every time getting better and better and better i mean it's his second year in formula one um the way how he handles the pressure now how he step by step is improving it's it's impressive to see i sometimes think of this as his first year in formula one because last year it was so uncompetitive the car and he didn't have a, a great teammate whereas suddenly he's now got a decent car a quick teammate and he's sort of learning things that Perhaps he could have learned last year. Yeah, I mean, is that fair? Is that a fair statement? Definitely, uh, it's a different scenario. You learn a lot more if you have a competitive car and you're right in the mix. I mean, if you every time, if the highlight is you just managed to go to Q2, uh, you know, you, you don't learn what's proper racing in Formula One. That's what you learn when you fight for points, well, you know, having a competitive car like he has now fighting against Max in Silverstone. These battles make you learn and step-by-step step improving. If you just drive at the back of the grid, you don't learn. Timo, it's so interesting to get your take. I, I wish I could speak German because I'd love to listen <laughs> to you as a, as a pundit on, on Sky Germany. How, how are you finding life as a pundit? Do you get frustrated? Is, does the racing driver in you still want to be out there on the grid? I know you're still racing in other things but do you still want to be out there or can you take a step back? Do you find that quite easy and do you enjoy giving your opinion I, I really enjoy trying to bring the sport which I love across through the TV in a very simple way I mean it's a very complicated sport trying to get this across to the spectators in a simple way that's what I like it's really a challenge is 
And how are things between you and Ralph? Because Ralph Schumacher, yeah. because oh, uh, very good. We only you replaced Ralph at Toyota, didn't you? And I was wondering whether there was any <laughs> not ones. I mean, we really, we, you know, <laughs> we really enjoy working together. I mean, if we spend, you know, normally we, we he's he's uh, at the races, and then then I have a race off. But there are races where where we are together. Do you bounce off each other quite well? We get on very well. He has a very clear and straightforward opinion as well, and that's what I have as well. But we, you know, we we respect each other. And he's really well uh, uh, known in the paddock. So when you look back at your own Formula One career, what do you think? How do you reflect on it? Is there anything you might have done differently? Yeah, I would have signed for Renault earlier. Um, but on, on the other side, I, you know, I never look. But there, there is a reason why it ended like this or why, why decisions were made. And I never look back and, and regret anything or being not happy about it. I enjoyed my time in Formula One. I learned a lot about it, uh, about myself, about the sport, and and I just tried to look forward. I just never really looked back. I mean, I made my decisions at that time, and they they had a reason. So when you look forward, do you have any other racing ambitions? You you've raced at Bathurst, yeah, which, which I was imagine was amazing. Really, really good. <laughs> a lot of fun. But what about Le Mans? Le Mans could be an option. I mean, unfortunately, I'm not with BMW anymore next year. Um, they they decided to go a different route. They, for some reason, I mean, I would have loved to be involved in the LMDH program doing Le Mans at some point. But let's see. I mean, when you know there is one door closing, there is another one opening. Let's see if if there are other options for for uh, for the future. But definitely, Le Mans is is still on the list. You're not close to hanging up your helmet yet. No, definitely not. No, I'm still enjoying too much when I sit in the car driving those things around a racetrack. What I really would love to do is, um, and maybe I need to talk to Michael Marzi about that, is V8 Supercars in Australia. This is really I would love to do. What, a season? I mean, of course, I mean, a, a one season. one-off at Bathurst is one thing. Uh, we could do a one-off, but I mean, if they would offer me a, a whole year, I mean, why not? But that's too far away. I would love to drive it first, see if I'm quick, uh, do a test. Uh, do maybe one-off race like the, those enduro races they have um, and then see yeah but these cars are really cool to drive I think Timo it's been really fantastic to have you on the show thank you very much for your time thank you Isn't Timo an interesting guy? He spoke so eloquently about the good and the bad moments of his Formula One career, and his description of the aftermath of Brazil 2008 left me with chills. That he's now friends with Felipe Massa says a lot about him and about Felipe. Timo, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up, and I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. Now, as usual, at this point in the show, I'd like to ask you to send in your thoughts and stories about Timo. What are your memories of that infamous race at Interlagos? Do you think Timo deserved a shot in a race-winning car? Let me know, and I'll read out some of your messages at the end of next week's show, which segues beautifully into what you sent in about Jan Lammers after last week's show. Like me, I think many of you were blown away by Jan's honesty and storytelling. Let's start with this from Dan van Zupfen. What an inspiring F1 Beyond the Grid episode with Jan, he says. I've heard about him a lot, but never knew he was so relaxed and honest. He's an amazing person and I can listen to his stories all day long. Well, exactly that, Dan. I could have listened to him all day long as well. I think he's the sort of guy who'd be interesting on any topic, not just motor racing. 
Let's go to Roger Timothy next. Uh, love this episode, Tom. Max might get all the attention, but Jan Lammers is possibly the most iconic Dutch motorsport driver for those in the know. Terrific on Dutch podcasts and media, and I'm so happy he could do the same in English. A wonderful and yet passionate practical man. Practical is a good way to describe him, Roger. He was and probably still is one of those people who's very good at finding solutions to any problem. Now, finally, let's hear from Nick Adcock. I've had the pleasure of driving in a 24-hour race with Jan, a lovely, lovely man and seriously quick. What a lovely message to end the show with, Nick. Jan is everything you describe, and I'm very jealous that you got to race with him. We'll leave it there for messages, but thank you to everyone who wrote in. I read them all, and please remember to write in about Timo Glock, and I'll read out some of those messages next week. If you enjoyed hearing from Timo, please leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app or share this episode with your friends and fellow F1 fans. And remember, you can always follow F1 Beyond the Grid for the fastest way to get our new episodes every Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. <laughs>